again to Luke chapter 7, and I want to read to you starting in verse 24, a passage we began a couple weeks ago. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Or what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, amongst those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Now, these words are Lord honored. John the Baptist with the highest accolades ever paid to a a mortal man. He referred to him as the greatest man who had ever lived. He said, amongst those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. No other man in all of human history was ever praised like this by Jesus. In fact, Jesus had more good things to say about John than about anyone else. He called him not just a prophet, he said he is more than a prophet. At another time, he referred to John as a bright and shining light. But as we noted last week, what makes our Lord's praise about John so striking is the timing of his praise because it immediately follows the most negative incident ever recorded about John the Baptist. As you'll recall, the verses leading up to our Lord's praise of John reveal that while in prison, John had entertained a doubt concerning whether or not Jesus was really the Christ, the Messiah. Now, for 18 months prior to this, John had been announcing to everyone that Jesus was the Messiah, but now he wasn't sure. And why wasn't he sure? Well, he wasn't sure because reports had been brought to him while he was in prison, brought to him by his disciples, about Jesus going around Galilee doing deeds of kindness rather than acts of of judgment. And this confused him. It confused him since he expected He knew that when the Messiah would come, he would act in judgment, not in kindness. But John didn't understand there's two comings of the Messiah. He had told the people of Israel that when the Christ would come, he would judge the wicked by burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He said, I baptize only in water, only with water. The Messiah, though, he baptizes with fire, which speaks of divine judgment upon the unrepentant. But Jesus wasn't baptizing anyone with fire. He hadn't judged the self-righteous Pharisees, nor had he poured out divine wrath upon the pagan and the oppressive Roman government, nor had he even dealt severely with that evil man, King Herod, who had unjustly imprisoned John. In fact, for all we know, though the scripture doesn't explicitly state this, John may have struggled with why am I in prison and you've not dealt with the wickedness of Herod. Well, it was this lack of messianic vengeance that caused John to wonder, have I been wrong about Jesus? Have I made a colossal blunder about him? Should we expect someone else? It doesn't fit with my theology. But he hadn't been wrong about Jesus. Jesus indeed was the true Messiah. 
And to reaffirm this truth to John, the Lord told John's disciples, he said, go and return and report to your teacher that I'm acting like the Messiah is supposed to act because all of these benevolent deeds that I'm doing, they're all done in fulfillment of what Isaiah wrote. Isaiah spoke of the Messiah doing these deeds of kindness, healing and casting out evil spirits and restoring the sight of the blind. This is all the fulfillment of messianic prophecies from the book of Isaiah. I am the Messiah. I am fulfilling what scripture says I'm to do. Now, it's right after this episode of doubt in John's life that Jesus chose to tell the people how highly he esteemed John the Baptist. And the reason he called the crowd's attention to John's greatness at this particular moment was to dispel any doubts they might have had about John being a prophet. In other words, Jesus didn't want John's reputation as a prophet tarnished by his doubt. So he reaffirmed John's credentials as a genuine prophet in order to reestablish John's credibility with the people as forerunner to himself, Messiah. But in the process of doing this, Jesus not only declared John to be the greatest man who had ever lived, but he actually revealed the very character qualities in John's life that made him so great. And dear friends, that is why this passage of Scripture is so meaningful, so relevant, so pertinent for us, because it allows us to take a glimpse into the heart and mind of God to see precisely how he evaluates greatness. You see, God's estimate of greatness is far different than the world's estimate of greatness. In generally, who does the world, the people of this world, unbelievers, who do they exalt as the greatest people in each generation? Well, those who have the most power, those who have the most influence, the most prestige, the highest education, the most money, But when God declares someone to be great, those things don't matter at all. He points to individuals that the world would never be impressed with, never. For example, we read these words in Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and he set him before them. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Listen, our world isn't impressed with those who have precious childlike humility, but God is. God considers them great. Again, we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 and 38 about those who are in what we would call God's hall of fame, the heroes of our faith, the heroes of chapter 11 of Hebrews. We read in others experience mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. And then the writer says, men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Listen, these are those Old Testament believers who were hated and hounded and disdained and persecuted by the world so that they suffered so greatly. But God's estimate of them is that they're so noble, they're so great that the world wasn't even worthy of them. 
So we know that we can't trust the world's perspective on greatness because its perspective on greatness is not only inaccurate and it's flawed, but it is distorted. It's warped. It's twisted due to man's sinfulness. He can't think clearly. He can't see clearly. He has no understanding. And the only one who can accurately tell us what true greatness is, is God himself. And it's here in Luke chapter 7. He calls our attention to John the Baptist as the primary example of human greatness. Now think about this. Think about what a radical truth this really is. Because in today's world, John the Baptist would never be considered great. In fact, he'd be considered an eccentric religious nutcase. He was a rustic ascetic who lived in the desert. He had only one set of clothes, a camel hair garment and a leather belt, and his diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. That's not the kind of lifestyle that gets you on the cover of Gentleman's Quarterly or any magazine like that. But John's greatness, it didn't lie in his asceticism, his fashions, or his diet. John's greatness was all about his godly character. And that's what Jesus focuses on as he reveals three character qualities about John the Baptist that made him so great. Now, folks, these qualities, and I've been stressing this for the last few weeks, these qualities are important for us to understand and more than understand, to understand so we will implement them in our lives because these are the qualities that God puts a high premium on. So as we go through these verses, we identify these various characteristics of John, you need to be specifically thinking, what changes do I need to make to have these character qualities be true of me? To have these same qualities in my life? What do I need to change? How do I need to think differently? How do I need to act differently? What do my motives have to be? Last week, we identified two of these character qualities that made John so great. Let me quickly review. First of all, Jesus said that John was great because of his spiritual stability. Verse 24, when the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? As we've already discovered the answer to this question, and this is a rhetorical question, the answer is obviously no. People of Israel were attracted to John. They went all the way out into the Judean wilderness to hear him because he was the complete opposite of a reed shaken by the wind. John was unbending in his convictions. He was a man who knew what he believed and he spoke with boldness, with clarity, with authority. Far from being a weak and a bending, flexible reed, a man who shifted his views according to the latest opinions and trends of his day, John was strong, John was sturdy, John was rock-like. And even though it is true that he did experience some doubt about Jesus, it was an isolated doubt and certainly out of character for John. The Lord said that John the Baptist's life, if you look at the big picture, it was characterized by unwavering firmness and commitment to the truth. And it was this spiritual stability that Jesus said marked him out as the greatest of men. Folks, that's exactly the kind of character quality each of us, if you know Christ, each of us should strive to have because spiritual stability pleases God. It is indeed a mark of genuine greatness, though society will never recognize this. And by society, I mean unbelievers, our culture. Those who are truly great 
are indeed believers in Christ who are grounded in the truths of God's word and they are unyielding in their commitment to those truths. Their lives are governed by the principles of scripture and they don't change their views based on the latest trends and fads that infiltrate the church. In other words, they don't let the culture dictate what they believe. They aren't so much interested in Christianity today, but in Christianity yesterday, meaning biblical Christianity, the Christianity of the Bible, the Christianity of the New Testament. Now, as I stressed to you last week, the only way you can become spiritually stable is by learning the Word of God and then internalizing those truths, applying those principles to your life. That's why God has provided pastors to spiritually equip you by teaching you Scripture. That's God's plan to have you grow. So you need to take seriously the role of your local church and its pastors in your spiritual development. They have been given to you by Jesus for your benefit. So the first quality that made John great was his spiritual stability. The second one that Jesus spoke of was his solitary commitment to God. He was committed to God and to God alone. We read in verse 25, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury, they're found in royal palaces. So once again, the question demanded a negative answer because in Christ's day, as I told you last week, those who wore fine clothing, were often those who worked for the government in those days, and therefore they lived in the royal palaces of kings. That's the way they were able to secure their government positions, how they were yes-men. They told the king and, and other high officials whatever they knew they wanted to hear, regardless of whether it was true or not. They just told them what they wanted to hear, and they got this promotion. They got this job security. John wasn't like that at all. And everybody knew that. Everyone understood that John the Baptist didn't play politics in order to secure material wealth or a good job for himself. John just spoke the truth of God regardless of the consequences because his sole commitment was to God and not to man. In fact, that's why the man's in prison because he spoke up to Herod and said, you are guilty of adultery and I don't really care who you are. You're a sinner. This is wrong. It eventually resulted in John being beheaded. So from John's example, we know that if we want to be great in God's eyes, then we need to have the same type of commitment to speak the truth regardless of what it costs us. And it may indeed cost you. It may cost you friendships, dear friendships. It may cost you financial gain. It may cost you esteem from others. And even your very life. It may cost you that, as it did John. Each of us has to determine in our hearts that our supreme goal in life is to please God, not be a man pleaser. And when you do that, your life is going to be marked by greatness as God defines greatness, even if others don't recognize that. Now today, as we continue our study of the passage, we've come to the third character quality that made John great, and that was his service for the Lord was Christ centered. His service for the Lord was Christ-centered. We read the beginning of verse 26, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and, and one who is more than a prophet. Now, once again, Jesus asked the crowd a question, but unlike the first two questions, which demanded an obvious negative answer, this one demands 
a positive response. He asked them if the reason they were initially drawn to John the Baptist and traveled all the way into the Judean wilderness to see him was because they wanted to go see a prophet. No verbal response was really necessary from the people because the answer was obviously, well, of course, yes, that's why we went out there. We went there to see and hear a prophet. Now, as I told you last week, John was an immensely popular figure in Israel precisely because the people knew that he was a prophet. That's why they went to hear him preach. In Matthew 14, verse 5, we read that the general population, here's what they thought of John. They thought of him as a prophet. This wasn't just a a handful of people. The nation esteemed him as a prophet. We read Matthew 14, 5, although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. So the vast population of Israel regarded John as a prophet. Now you may wonder what's so special about having a prophet in Israel because after all, Jewish history was filled with lots of prophets. That's true, but it was a big deal. I touched on this last week. I'll explain more today. It was a, a really big deal because when John the Baptist came on the scene, there had been no prophet, no prophetic voice in Israel for the last 400 years. See, over the centuries, the primary way that God had communicated to the Jewish people was through a number of godly men who were called prophets. The book of Hebrews opens with these magnificent words. Remember, the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews. So this is very Jewish, and they would all understand this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. He's saying our whole history is God spoke to us through these men known as prophets. Now these prophets were the human instruments through which divine revelation came to Israel so that these men functioned essentially as God's mouthpiece to the nation in a miraculous, supernatural, even mysterious way. God controlled these men so that when they gave a message to the people, the words that came out of their mouths were indeed God's words. Now, they were God's words in their own vocabulary, in their own style, so there was nothing mechanical about this, nothing artificial about this, but they spoke from God. That's what Peter says as he explains a little bit about what we refer to as inspiration, biblical inspiration, divine inspiration, 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. But know this, first of all, Peter says, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In other words, none of these prophets, when they minister, he's not talking about having private conversations with their friends and family members, but when they ministered, none of these men ever gave their own opinions. Know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Nobody just spoke And it was what they were thinking alone. When they ministered, when they spoke a message to the people, they were so governed, so dominated, so guided by the Holy Spirit that their very words were from God. They spoke from God. Not just thoughts, words. 
Now the prophetic office in Israel began with the ministry of Moses in about the year 1500 BC. And it continued as God raised up man after man, prophet after prophet throughout Jewish history. But all that came to a grinding halt about the year 400 BC with the prophetic ministry of Malachi, the man who wrote the last Old Testament book. And that's why prior to the time of John the Baptist, there had been no prophet in Israel for the previous 400 years. It stopped with Malachi. And then you have the intertestamental period, that period of time between the close of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament era. God hadn't given a fresh message to the Jewish people through a prophet in four centuries. Prophecy was simply a spiritual phenomena of Israel's distant past. No wonder the people of John's day all wanted to hear him. They had never heard, they had never seen a prophet in their lifetime. Their parents had never heard or seen a prophet. Their grandparents had never heard or seen a prophet. They had only read about prophets in the Bible. It was ancient history to them. But all that changed when John the Baptist came on the scene preaching in the wilderness because John was the first prophetic voice in Israel in 400 years. So it's not surprising that John the Baptist was such a popular figure with people all over Israel flocking to hear him speak, hear him preach, He prophesied about the soon arriving Messiah. Now, although we usually think of John as having lived during what we refer to as this New Testament era, and we think like that because we read about him on the pages of the New Testament. However, it's not accurate. John the Baptist was actually the last of a long line of Old Testament prophets. So he's mentioned in the New Testament He really belonged to the Old Testament era. In fact, in Matthew's account of this very same passage, Matthew actually quotes Jesus as saying this. Matthew 11, 13, we read these words. Jesus said, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. John is the last Old Testament prophet, though he's on the pages of the New Testament. See, though John was a contemporary of Christ, And in that sense, he was similar to all the prophets that went before him because like all of them, he proclaimed the same thing. He proclaimed the coming of the Messiah. However, note this, although John was similar to other Jewish prophets and that he preached about the Messiah, John was different and John was distinct from any other Old Testament prophet. And that's why after asking the crowd if the reason that they went out to the wilderness was to see a prophet. Notice how Jesus concludes verse 26. He says, yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. Now, while acknowledging that John the Baptist was indeed a prophet, and he was a prophet like all the Old Testament prophets, Jesus also says that John was different. He was unique from any other prophet. The way Jesus put it, he was more than a prophet. In other words, John was something far beyond a prophet. Yes, a prophet, but beyond a mere prophet. So what did the Lord mean by this? What does he mean by this statement, more than a prophet? In what way was John more than a prophet? Listen closely. Like all the other prophets before him, John gave inspired predictions about the Messiah's coming. Now, some prophets spoke about 
aspects of Messiah's birth, his life, his ministry. Others predicted his sufferings, his death, while still others focused on his millennial earthly kingdom reign. However, John's unique prophetic message to the Jewish people was this, repent for the kingdom of Messiah is at hand. Meaning in light of the soon arrival of Messiah the king and his kingdom, you need to prepare yourself by forsaking your sin. That was John's message. But note this, John not only gave prophecy about the Messiah's arrival, John himself was actually the subject of prophecy. Did you know that? He was the subject of prophecy. See, on the very pages of the Old Testament, there was a prophecy made about John the Baptist. That's unique. There's no other prophet in Scripture who is prophesied to come but John. In other words, John had the unique distinction of being the only prophet to be the fulfillment of prophecy himself. Since he and his ministry about Christ's coming have been prophetically predicted in the Old Testament book of Malachi, that last Old Testament book. And that specific prediction is what Jesus calls our attention to in verse 27. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So this is written. It's written about John. This is a reference to Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, which is an actual prediction. It doesn't mention John the Baptist's name, but it's about him. It concerns John coming in the role of Messiah's unique messenger and herald, the one who would prepare the hearts of the people to receive their king by calling them to repent of their sins. See, not only was John the Baptist greater than any other prophet because he himself was an actual fulfillment of prophecy, I mean, that's part of it, but John was greater than any other prophet, watch this, because he had the unique privilege of not only announcing the Messiah's coming, as all the other prophets did, but of actually, note this, identifying Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. See, all the prophets, all the other prophets said that the Messiah was coming, but only John had this incredible honor of seeing the Messiah face to face and saying, that's him, It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the promised one. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it was in this unique role as Messiah's forerunner and personal herald that Jesus proceeds to praise John as being greater than anyone else. Verse 28, the beginning says, I say to you among those born of women, there there is no one greater than John. Folks, that's the context. As my herald... As my messenger, no one greater than John. As we've already learned in saying these words, Jesus was clearly identifying the Baptist as the greatest man who had ever lived. And listen, part of that greatness had to do with his unique role as Christ's forerunner and herald. But what's important is to know that Christ's comment about John's greatness, note this, went far beyond the fact that he had a privileged ministry. When Jesus referred to John as the greatest man who had ever lived, it also involved the way that John had carried out his unique ministry. It wasn't simply that he had this role. It was how he conducted, how he carried out his role as the Lord's herald. 
the way that John served him in that role because John had done exactly what a king's herald was supposed to do. And what's that? Direct the people's attention to their king. That's what a herald does. He delivers a message. He points them to the king. The godliness of John's character was clearly seen in the fact that his entire life, his entire ministry was Christ-centered. It was all about the Messiah, not self-centered. He didn't promote himself, he promoted Christ. John was always pointing people away from himself, pointing them to Jesus. And that's one of the reasons Jesus marked him out as the greatest man born of woman. So, in light of this truth, I want us to think about how John's greatness was displayed in his Christ-centered service. Because although we certainly don't have the same type of ministry that John had in principle, though, our lives, our service for the Lord, are to be just as Christ-centered as John's was Christ-centered. First of all, John's greatness is seen in the way that he was always speaking about Jesus. Every time we see John in the context of his ministry, he's saying glorious truths about Christ that exalt and honor the Lord. For example, even before John knew that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, he was busy telling people that their coming king is so holy that the only way to approach him, the only way to enter into his kingdom is by repentance, forsaking your sin. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Another time, John said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Don't don't just say, oh, I'm sorry for my sin, and then continue it. Forsake your sin, bear fruit, in keeping with your profession of repentance. And then, when finally it's revealed to John that Jesus of Nazareth, he's the Messiah, notice what incredible things John says about Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 15. John testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. A few verses later in John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, John chapter 1 verse 34, I myself have seen and have testified, this is the Son of God. Now think about this. In just these few verses, and it's only a few, we see John talking about some of the great doctrines and truths about our Lord Jesus. He spoke of the pre-existence of Christ. He existed before me. He spoke of the atonement of Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He spoke of the deity of Christ. This is the Son of God. Folks, these are the essential doctrines of Christ. It's very clear that John the Baptist was a Christ-centered individual in that he was always speaking about the greatness and the grandeur of Jesus, never about himself being great, never. Out of the abundance of his heart came these glorious words about Jesus. So what about you? Does your life, does your ministry focus on Christ or on yourself? Do you think and talk more about Jesus than about yourself? Do you know the various aspects of Christ's character and salvation well enough to intelligently talk about them like John did? John's greatness is seen in the awesome things he said about Christ. But his greatness is also seen in the fact that he refused to call attention to himself. He just refused it. He had opportunity to, but he didn't. John was genuinely humble. 
And his humility is evident by the way he constantly put himself in the background and always put Jesus in the forefront. Never promoting himself, but always calling others to focus their attention away from him and onto Christ. For example, notice what we read in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. This is the testimony of John when the Jews, meaning the Jewish religious leaders, sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. That's all he said. Notice how John redirected attention away from himself. Never exalted himself. Never tried to make a name for himself. Never tried to grab the spotlight. He just claimed to be a nameless voice. That's all. Telling people to prepare their hearts for the arrival of their Lord, the Messiah, the King. As that great song from Casting Crowns puts it, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who saved my soul. That was John. He considered himself just a, a nobody trying to tell everybody about Jesus, the Lamb of God who could save their soul. And this expression, I want you to know, this expression of humility and Christ-centeredness, it wasn't a one-time isolated incident and the rest of his life wasn't like that. No, it was characteristic of John's whole life. Again, we read these amazing words concerning John the Baptist in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. Listen to this. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. They came to John. They said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, speaking of Jesus, to whom you testify, behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friends of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He has to increase, but I, I have to decrease. What we read here is that when John's disciples tried to draw him into a popularity contest, some competition with Jesus, John refused. He rejoiced that more people were following Jesus than himself because that's the way it was supposed to be. That was John's ministry, to actually work himself out of a job by having the number of his followers decrease while the number of Christ's followers increased. John was just constantly putting himself in the background and, and just putting Jesus in the forefront, letting it be known that he was not the Christ. He was just one cent ahead of him. He wasn't the groom. He was the friend of the groom. In other words, he was the best man, but not the groom. He wasn't to grow in popularity. He was to decrease in popularity as more and more people followed Christ. Now, folks, the principle here, I think, is quite clear. 
I think it's rather obvious. John's greatness is seen in the fact that he did not seek glory for himself, but always sought for Christ to be magnified. If you're ever going to be great in God's eyes, then you need to have the same type of humility that John had. It's a humility that intentionally diverts attention away from yourself and seeks only to give Christ his due glory. Now, frankly, that's something that can be a real struggle. It is a real struggle in our lives because in our flesh, we are just so self-absorbed to the point that we, that we love talking about ourselves and what's going on in our lives, sometimes to the detriment of, of not talking about the Lord, not taking an interest in other people. And of course, I understand it's necessary at times that we have to talk about ourselves. That's just the way life is, but not excessively. Not excessively. The focus of our lives and the conversations we have should be more about Christ and biblical truth and less about ourselves. I have noticed that the men of God that I most highly respect, my pastor heroes, they seldom talk about themselves. Seldom. In fact, though I've read and listened to many sermons by such Men as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, John MacArthur, and Steve Lawson. If you're not familiar with Steve Lawson, you should be. He's, he's someone you should listen to. I don't recall them talking much about themselves, if anything, to say about themselves. In fact, I don't recall ever reading or hearing a sermon that Lloyd-Jones did in which he talks about something personal in his own life. It was always Christ. It's always biblical truth. Certainly was true of the greatest man who ever lived, that was John, but also certainly true of the man considered by most to be the greatest evangelist since the Apostle Paul, namely who? If I asked you, who do you think that, that is? You probably, very few would, would know who I'm talking about. The man was George Whitfield. He lived in England from 1714 to 1770. Though Whitfield and most don't know this, Whitfield was the real founder of the Methodist Church in England, not John Wesley. And though during his lifetime, he traveled to the American colonies many, many times, went up and down the coast preaching Christ to the point that thousands upon thousands came to hear him preach, so much so that during his time in the colonies, he was more popular, more well-known than George Washington himself. Though all of this is true, about George Whitfield. Today, George Whitfield is hardly known. I don't know of any college named after Whitfield. There might be some, but I don't know of any. I don't know of any churches named after Whitfield. I know of many that have the name Wesleyan in it. George Whitfield's hardly known. But that's exactly how George Whitfield wanted it to be. One of his favorite expressions was this, let the name of George Whitfield perish so long as Christ is exalted. And that's pretty much what's happened. That's the way it should be with us. We promote Christ. We do not promote ourselves. We should never be the hero of our own stories. Jesus should be the hero of our stories. Our conversations when we're the ones moving the conversation along should be centered more around Christ than ourselves. Now, it shouldn't be in an artificial, forced way that all of a sudden you're talking to somebody about sports and you get into a deep theological discussion. I'm not saying that, but it ought to be the natural flow of what we have to say. 
not something artificial. And so based on the fact that John carried out this unique ministry as Messiah's forerunner and, and herald by promoting Christ and not himself, we can understand why Jesus said he was the greatest man who had ever lived, even though that must have really surprised the people who knew John was having a doubt about Jesus. Could you imagine? He's the greatest man. He just doubted your very identity. But if that statement was a surprise to Christ's listeners, then the Lord's next statement must have absolutely stunned them. Notice the last few words of verse 28. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. This is a remarkable statement. It has puzzled many people over the years. It may very well puzzle you. I'll try to unravel this puzzle. Jesus said that as great as John the Baptist was, and he was the greatest man who had ever lived up to that point in time, yet the most insignificant, least important person in Christ's kingdom is greater than John. In other words, every believer today, regardless of their lack of spiritual gifts, their prominence or maturity, is greater than John the Baptist. Now, how can that, how can that be? How can you and I be greater than John the Baptist? This man had such depth of character, such spiritual maturity that made him stand out as greater than all of the giants of the Old Testament. Yet Jesus said right here that any believer in this room is greater than John. How's that possible? Well, we know, we know that our Lord can't be referring to greatness here in terms of character because it's not possible that the most immature Christian today has greater godliness, greater character than John. So if Jesus isn't talking about godly character, then what kind of greatness is he referring to? Listen closely. There's only one way, only one way that every believer living in this present age is greater than John the Baptist. And that is, you ready? We have greater knowledge, greater understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ than John ever did. I want you to notice something and as I try to tie this together. Notice that in speaking of those who are least, Jesus specifically mentions the kingdom of God. And those, he said, who are least in the kingdom and why did he bring the kingdom up? What is the kingdom of God? How does the kingdom of God, what does that have to do with being greater than John the Baptist? Well, essentially, the kingdom of God is the sphere in which God rules as king over his people. That's the kingdom. God rules in a sphere as king over his people. However, though the kingdom of God has always existed, there are various forms that the kingdom takes during certain periods of time. For example, in the Old Testament, God's kingdom existed in the form of him ruling over the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, as he gave promise after promise to them of a coming Messiah. This was an era we could call the era of anticipation, as they anticipated Messiah coming. But when John the Baptist when he started preaching, he spoke of the kingdom of God existing in a different form. That form being an era when the promises of the anticipated Messiah are now fulfilled. This is why John's message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It means it's here. It's now. Messiah is here. 
He and his kingdom have arrived. The anticipation is over. Fulfillment has come. And so with the arrival of Jesus then, the kingdom of God took on a new form. We might call it the form of fulfillment. I'm not the first one to come up with that, but that, that's a good way of describing it. As he now rules over his church, he's not through with Israel, but he now rules over his church, and those in this present-day church era have the privilege, note this, of having God's complete revelation about Jesus Christ so that we understand more about Christ and his work of salvation than John the Baptist ever did. And in that sense, he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John because every one of us, every one of us, if you know Christ, has a greater understanding of the person and the work of Jesus Christ than John did. See, living on the side of the cross that John lived on before Christ's crucifixion, before his resurrection, before his ascension to glory, there were truths about Jesus that John had accurate but very limited understanding of. But now, now we live on this side of the cross in this kingdom era where the promises of Messiah have been fulfilled. And so you and I have been given the highest of privileges to have the complete picture of God's revelation in Christ. Here's the way one Bible teacher explained it. I'm reading this because I thought he did such a good job and I hope it'll clarify things for you. He said, in contrast to John and others in the era of promise, believers in the era of fulfillment have the full record of the life of Christ in the Gospels, the spread of the Gospel by the Spirit's power in Acts, the explanation of Christ's person and work and purpose of God in salvation in the Epistles, and the details of Christ's glorious return to establish His earthly kingdom and the eternal state that follows in the book of Revelation. Believers in the era of fulfillment also have the indwelling Holy Spirit to empower and guide them. As a result, we understand truths not understood by those in the era of promise not even by its greatest prophet, John the Baptist. Now, Jesus said that John the Baptist was greater than all the other prophets because his witness for him, his witness for Christ, was greater than any other prophet, right? All the other prophets said Messiah was coming someday, but John could literally point to Jesus and say, that's him, he's arrived, behold the Lamb of God. But in comparison, folks, to what we know today, because we have the New Testament, we know far more and understand far more about Jesus and the doctrines of salvation than John ever did. Like all Old Testament believers, John saw the cross in shadowy forms, but not the physical reality of it. He died before Christ's crucifixion, as I said, his resurrection, his ascension, the inauguration of the church age, an age in which God has now explained to us clearly on the pages of the New Testament the full meaning of salvation. And so because we live on this side of the cross, we just have a greater understanding of the person and work of Christ. And that means that not only we are so privileged, but we're privileged so that we can make our witness to others about Christ that much clearer. John was great because he was clear based on what he knew concerning Christ. When we witness to people, we ought to be able to lay out the gospel far more clearer than John ever did because we know more than John did. So I ask you, do you know how to articulate the gospel message? 
Do you know how to lead someone to faith in Christ? Do you know how to take them through the steps leading them to salvation? You need to. If you've been sitting here hearing the word of God for months, for years, shame on you if you don't know how to lead someone to faith in Christ. You ought to know the gospel well enough to speak intelligently about Jesus. I don't mean you have to be a seminary professor, but you ought to be able to explain the simple gospel because you have been privileged to know so much greater understanding than the greatest man who ever lived. Listen, we have a booklet out in the booklet rack, God's gift to you. Go read that. It helps you to know what to say to somebody or get some other gospel track that'll help you to clearly articulate the points of salvation. This is why I say be here tonight. You don't have anything better to do than being here sitting under the word of God, hearing about total depravity. Listen, you'll never be able to fully explain the gospel to someone unless you understand the doctrine of total depravity, the sinfulness of man. You've been given a golden opportunity. Don't miss that. These are those times that God says, I've opened the door for you. Go through. Go through it. So think about the great privilege that you have. As God evaluates greatness, he evaluates it in light of how faithful you and I are to be witnesses for Christ. To point people to Christ and not just say something like, uh, believe on Jesus, call upon him and you'll be saved. Yes, you're a sinner. You've got to spread that out. You've got to explain what that means. If people don't see their need for Christ, they'll never come to Christ. John the Baptist was a great man. And one that we indeed should seek to emulate. That's why this passage is in the Word of God. His greatness was seen in the fact he had biblical convictions. And so can you. So can you. If you'll internalize and apply Scripture to your life. You have to learn the Word of God to internalize it and apply it. John's greatness was seen in the fact that he would not compromise biblical truth. Regardless of the consequences. That can be so true of you too. And it will be true of you if you seek to please God and only God. You have to ask the Lord, help me. I do tend to be wishy-washy. I don't want people disliking me when I tell them they're sinners. Nobody does. Ask God to give you some, some backbone to stand by convictions. And John's greatness was seen in how Christ-centered he was. And so can you be. Just seek to promote Jesus and not yourself. Ask the Lord to help you. Not talk so much about yourself. Talk about Christ. And if Jesus Christ is not your Savior and Lord, then I urge you to turn from your sin. You say, what sin do I have? Well, I'm sure you have many. I don't have time to go through all of them. But the basic heart of sin is being self-centered, self-absorbed, thinking we are the center of the universe. You have to see yourself as a lost sinner. You're not the center of the universe. You're a lost sinner who desperately needs Christ for salvation because without him, there is no hope. There is no hope of ever being reconciled to God. You can't do anything to reconcile yourself to God. Only Christ did. He died for sinners like you. And he invites and even commands you to come to him and trust him for salvation. When Jesus died, he said, it's finished. Meaning the debt is paid. All you need to do is repent, turn from your sin, turn to Christ and trust him. And the key word here is alone. Trust him alone for your salvation. If you'd like to speak to one of our pastors about Christ, then see me as we close the service. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this this passage of Scripture which is very convicting. It's convicting to me. It's convicting to us. 
Lord, if we're believers, we, we want to be pleasing to you. We want to be great in your sight, not to promote ourselves, not to point out our greatness to others because that would, that would be just the opposite. But Lord, help us to be like John, spiritually stable with convictions. Help us to be like, like John in, in that we, we proclaim the, the truth without being yes men. We're, we're bold. We speak forth your word to please you and only you, even if it costs us the dearest of friends, even our lives. Lord, help us to be Christ-centered. We're so self-centered. Help us to be Christ-centered. Help us in natural ways, not artificial, not awkward, but to steer conversations to Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to be faithful witnesses for you, telling others the truth about you in, in ways that, that encompass the gospel message. Speaking of man being a sinner, speaking of the grace of God, speaking of God who is holy, but God who is loving, speaking of Christ who died for our, our sins, speaking of what faith is, trusting you alone, Lord, for salvation. I pray that each one here who knows you would seek their hearts to know the gospel well enough to explain it to others. What privileged people we are. We have the New Testament. We often take that for granted. Oh, what John would, would do if he could have the New Testament. But we do. And so in that sense, we're, we're greater than John. So Lord, help us be faithful to you. And I pray you'll draw to yourself those who don't know you, those who think too highly of themselves. May they see their their wretchedness. May they see their lost estate before a holy God who by his own holiness is bound to punish them forever in hell unless they repent and turn to Christ. So do that work, Lord, we pray, so that you'll be glorified, you'll be honored. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.